wrote a letter, well, not a letter really, more of a, a small little booklet or a treatise or a pamphlet, you might want to call it. And it was called The Unity of the Church. And in that phrase is where uh, this one phrase comes down to us through church history in which he says, He cannot have God his Father, who would not have the church his mother. Now that rings in some of our ears foreign or obscure. And I hope uh, as we get into the word today that it will just feel even more awkward. Um, because that is a good place to lean into when there's questions to be had about God's purpose and mission uh, for the church. That it's not just the gospel of what should be the case somewhere up there in our theology and the way we think and what we believe, but actually down here in the way we live and move and have our being in an institution called the Church of Jesus Christ. We find here in 1 Peter, if you would turn there, the beginning of this um, epistle. Uh, in verse 3 we'll read, beginning all the way uh, to 19. One of these marks, indicators of what is actually the true church of Jesus Christ. Our Nicene fathers, that is in the 4th century, came up with a creed that says this, We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We spoke about the church being one or being unified in unity. And here we'll see that the church is to be holy. Holy. You find here in 1 Peter, third verse says this, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this time, I mean, I'm sorry, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have uh, been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. It's so easy to forget that, but that really is all that matters. What is the gold that will not burn away at the fire of His coming? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, now you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, that is, the very salvations of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, all the Old Testament scriptures, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. This was something beyond their generation. 
and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things of which angels long to look. Now all that was a preface for this one therefore. Because of all of this, Peter says, Therefore, prepare your mind for action. And be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish, without spot. That, that is the basis of our holiness as a church. This is a letter written by Peter to the church and it is a particular call from the very beginning of holiness, that the church should be holy. See, the scandal of having a confession that says the church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic institution. The scandal of that to our American mind or American culture is real. It is a counter-cultural confession, to be sure. If it ever was, it is very much now. To say that, no, of course as Christians we believe in God the Father... Yes, and we believe in Jesus Christ, the one only begotten Son. And yes, surely, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the precious Holy Spirit, who is our help and friend and comforter in every moment of our lives. But we also confess that we believe in a church, a church that is an institution. Now that's the part where it rubs a little differently. That's the part where we pause and say, an institution, like a bureaucracy with desks and chairs and strobe lights or those trough lights that make noises when you turn them on? An institution? Yes. But without all the building and all the other stuff, there is an actual institution that we believe that is unique. Unique, unlike all the others. It is holy. It is one. See, we bear these cultural ideologies that make this feel uncomfortable for us or bizarre for us to say, I believe in an institution. I'm fine believing in God. But to believe in an institution, here's the reality. We are, as Americans particularly, very individualistic. This is something we enjoy. It's Independence Day. 
We are pragmatic individualism, pragmatism, and we're very postmodern, postmodernism. So when I uh, try to help my daughters get dressed in the morning or sometime when we have to get ready to go somewhere quickly, uh, I usually find uh, every once in a while I'll run into this problem. And the problem is um, I will address them very quickly and I'll put these shirts on them that I've used before. They're tried and true. I know these shirts. I throw them on them. And we get downstairs because we're trying to get in the car. And then I'll look at them. And then I'll simply say, my, how you've grown. Because it's nothing more than I see that their sleeves are hiked way too high. And uh, their belly is bumping out from the bottom. And I see all that and I say, oh, oh yeah. I never really have looked at these tags. It says like 2T and 3T on the back. And, and it's that familiarity, almost like the clothes we wear, that these are our cultural clothes. We are Americans. We are so individualistic. We are so pragmatic. And yes, we're very postmodern. Now you might say, well, I don't even really know maybe what some of those are and how is that so? Of course, those are the clothes you wear every day. You never think about it. But we are. We're very individualistic. I cannot uh, account how many times I've spoken with people in which they say, yes, I have Jesus, but I don't need the church. Why? Because it's me and Jesus by myself. We're doing our American individualistic thing. And I have a spirituality. Don't even question. Do you know how silly you look wearing that shirt? Do you know how ridiculous it is to put that on? See, that's individualism gone awry. That is how we think. But see, the confession of a church is to say, at one point, no further, there is no individualism here. There is an institution of people that God has called in unity. Do you realize that that is what heaven is? To come together. All of God's, that is the invisible church, the present, the past, the ones who are not born yet into the future, who will be in Christ. That there will be a final end in which we will all be united together. And if, you, if your heaven is being alone by yourself doing what you want, you're not going to like heaven. Because you won't be alone. You won't. See, we can and should enjoy our individual K-cups of coffee with the flavor just right. And you can watch that movie by yourself on your individual phone. You don't even have to go to the living room and watch it with your family. And don't even bother talking to someone in a grocery store. They'll drop it off at your front door. Just use a different app. And if you don't feel like cooking, we have DoorDash. Praise God. We are very individualistic. More so than we were even 30 years ago. How important it is to say, we have a church church you may get door dashed by yourself but you may never worship Jesus Christ by yourself we are called to a table to eat together pragmatism we love things that work and things that work are good but we're not building a bridge how do you know if it's a good bridge if it works. See, 
Jesus Christ is building His church. That's very different. We are called living stones, spiritual stones, a spiritual structure erected by Jesus Christ for His glory. And so us bringing in our, oh, this is how we do it here in our culture. This is how you build a city. This is how you build something. This is how you make it here in America. That is not how it works. Jesus is building His church. He is doing it by His Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the means of grace across the world. And it might seem foolishness. That is, there were pragmatists in Corinth. Paul, in the beginning of the first of the epistle of Corinthians, says, I know I am a bad speaker. I know I am foolish. And writing to the Romans, he says, It is the foolishness of the gospel that is the power of God and our salvation. It does not seem like this would be the best way to do it. It does not seem like this would be the best way to reach the world. But this is the way to reach the world because it is Jesus' church and he's building it. We could itemize our budget to put a water slide down the hill behind the church. We could. And people would come. And it would work for nothing else except getting people wet. But if we want people to enter into the eternal glory of God, we'll have to leave that pragmatism aside. Because we have no tools for something to build like that. Do you see how the church is? Postmodernism this other shirt that looks ridiculous on us. This one we don't talk about very often, but it no more could mean an appearance of wisdom by being very, very skeptical of all meaning. That's all postmodernism means. Being very, very skeptical of all meaning, true meaning. Like That is, people speak of meta-narratives. That is, what is the narrative of your life? What is the narrative of this world? What is the be- Where did you come from? Why are you here? Where are you going? The big questions, right? We have thrown all of those away. You're not allowed to say what's the meaning of life. No one knows what the meaning of life is. You can't have a narrative that defines all other people's narratives. That is the reality of postmodernism. Which when I describe it this way, you will realize, oh my gosh, I, all my clothes fit this way. Everything in our culture is postmodern. That is, it is not objective truth of what is real, but it is self-referential truth that only matters. What do you think? What is your gender? It's, we're at the very edges of the reality of whatever postmodernism is. Modernism is. Gender used to be the same thing as sex. Those terms were used interchangeably. To explain what postmodernism is, it's nothing more than going on the Canadian Institute for Health and reading their definition of gender. And it says, gender is a social construct of how you feel about your characteristics of whether you're a boy or a girl. That's what's ultimately true. How you feel, what you think internally. Truth is self-referential. Right? That is... That is, there is no real narrative. So the, the, the tragedy and the way to structure the church particularly, because it's one thing to say, oh, that's just silly. Yes, but there is a whole generation of teenagers that know nothing. Like they have no self-referential truth other than themselves. They, they have no narrative. They don't know why they're here. They think they evolved from nothing. They think their life means nothing. And they think they're going to die just like an amoeba or a chimpanzee. Right? And so you have to make your reality. And so 
There is, the, the PCA General Assembly a few weeks ago had a report in which they issued a humble petition to all the governing jurisdictions and bodies of this country to command them to repent of their wicked sin of child mutilation. This is what you would have to do with warm crimes that the Nazis got away with. Now we're doing it to ourselves by our own freedom. Right? To stop doing that, why? Because there was an 800% increase in gender dysphoria in the past few years. Now how does that happen, an 800% increase? Because our brains are spilling out of our side of our ears. We have no structure. We have no narrative. We have no reality that is real outside of us. How important it is, as a church, we confess this. How's this for a meta-narrative? That we're going to say, here is it all. We're going to tell you the reason for life. For the Council of Nicaea goes on to say, We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look, without blinking an eye or bashing our faces, we look for the resurrection of the dead and to the life of the world to come. Amen. Right? That's a meta-narrative. We know who we are, and we know where we're going. And those kids that don't have that, they don't even know what's in their pants. It's embarrassing and sad. It's sad. So yes, we confess. We confess the church. A real institution with real rigid structures and corners, something to stand on, something to build on. And oh, it is so important to have a sermon series like this because it is evidently true that many of the rigid structures and institutions of our society are surely crumbling. And many want to say, well, yes, but that, it's always this way. It is, but it's particularly bad. It's particularly bad. So we are holy. And we are one. We are the church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has written this, Apostle Peter has written this letter. It is called a Catholic letter. That is, it is written for no particular occasion and to no particular church. It is a letter that was to be distributed all throughout a large region of many churches. He speaks in such a way that he says this. As he who has called you is holy, be holy in all of your conduct. He has called you to holiness. Therefore, be holy in all of your conduct. That is, we were called. Called this election. God is speaking into the world. And people are hearing it. And they are being drawn to Him. And that being drawn to God is that very act. Holiness. Sanctifying. And then not only that, this call is a call to holiness that is moral. It is a call to conduct. So there are two particular definitions of holiness. And you find it, particularly in the old church, they would always quote this one verse from Song of Solomon. It says, My beloved is but one. She is the only one of her mother. It's this poetic psalm. Song of Solomon is a poetic, romantic poetry of a man who loves this woman. And we had a wedding on Friday here at the church. The unity and the holiness of the church is nothing simpler than a bride standing there waiting to be married. 
for she is only one. He stands there across from her, this one unique woman. She is one, not two, not three. This one woman, unlike all other women, therefore she is holy, she is unique. She is singular, she is unique. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It is one, it is unified. It is the church united to the head. That is the one Jesus Christ. He loves her, he loves her with all his heart. And there is none like her. That is, she is my dove, the one. She is the only one of her mother. There is no woman like her. There is this body of people that Jesus Christ loves in such a unique way that it is holy. For holy has two aspects. It can either mean to be separated, to be cut off and distinct. And it can also mean morally pure, good, that is right in all of your conduct. That is, that's the kind of life we live. And those come together. Right? Certain families act certain ways. If you're part of this family, you're unique to this family, you do certain things that family does, your conduct changes. Now we have been called to the family of God. Right? To be called to the family of God, that is, to not be other than in the families of God, means that you should be starting to act like you're in the family of God. That is, your unique calling, your distinctness, separateness from the world, which is perfectly fine. Be separate. Don't be afraid to be separated from the world. Because you've been called to the Lord and therefore your conduct follows within that family tree. That you've been called children of God in the church. So Peter is going to unpack this as like a three chord thread. He unites the church in its holiness particularly this way. He says that we are called to communion from the cross. Jesus Christ, there is something that happens spiritually. And it's a true mystery in the scriptures. Of course we know that the Holy Spirit was always active and present throughout the word of God. Throughout the port of history. But there is something that happened in which Jesus Christ ascended only a few feet from the ground and was pinned to a tree. And then he breathed his last and he died. And he's buried and rose, resurrected, and ascended into the true heaven, the heavenly throne room, the holy of holies. And from there, the Holy Spirit issued forth upon the world, poured out, not as though the Holy Spirit was never there before, but with such a, a power and a holy influence that it absolutely changed everything. That's how we are holy. From the cross, Jesus Christ has called. You hear him. You come toward him in communion to, to unite yourself to him. And it is that very cross that sanctifies you, that makes you holy. Because when you hear the petition, be holy for I am holy, we all would understand. Would we, would we not all understand? <clears throat> now how am I going to wrestle with that verse? I know who I am. I know what I did last week. I'm going to take any of these, this, this, this verse seriously. What does that mean? Listen to the word of God. He who has called you is holy, therefore be holy in all your conduct. 
It is definitive. Yes, we believe that you are made holy progressively. That you will be made holy in chunks. You will be made holy and every five years you could look at your life and say, I am more godly. I am not tempted or taken in by the temptations of sin in this world as easily as I was five years ago. But see, if you only understand holiness that way, then you're only going to think of yourself as maybe holy and maybe not holy based on your performance or your conduct throughout your life. See, there is a definitive sanctification. That is, the moment He calls you, you're holy. In a unique called sense. That you are set apart from the world. Never to be part of the world ever again. It is a perfectly effective call. It is the same power of the Word of God that creates the whole world, that separates the waters above from the waters below, and the land from the sea, in which He separates you from the world, and He says, Come to Me. And the moment you hear Him say, Come to Me, first, you can do nothing but come. And the moment you come, you will never be the same again. You are now officially His. You are holy. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone would enter, he enters by me. And he will be saved. And will go out and find pasture. See, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And my sheep hear my voice. There's no need to worry about how the church should do what it does in evangelism and pragmatism, and changing all things around. It doesn't matter at all. For my sheep hear my voice. And that power draws the church together in holiness. It is a definitive, unique act. And what follows from that is a conduct, a type of holiness that is moral. That we are to be holy in all of our conduct. So you would say, yes, so I'm a sheep, but if you would look at my coat, I'm maybe not the whitest sheep in the flock. Maybe I have imperfections and impurities. That's fine. But you're a sheep, you see. That has to be reckoned with. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ has spots. Yes, it has blemishes. But it is the church, unlike any other. See, there will be a day in which we will all be revealed. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, The Son of Man came in His glory with all His angels in the day to come. And He will sit on His glorious throne with all the nations gathered around. And He will holyize everything. He will separate the people from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You see? That holiness, that separation is to be finalized, completed. That the church would be made perfectly holy. And yes, it might be that you are a messy sheep, as we all are. But you are a sheep. And you will be separated perfectly and washed finally in the blood like no other. This calling precedes our conduct. See, you don't try to create holy conduct in your life. He says, you were called to be holy. Therefore be holy in all your conduct. The calling is first. The conduct follows. The holy church must have a holy mind. That is, we prepare our minds for actions, he says in verse 13. Being sober-minded. The word there, prepare your mind for action. 
I want you to hear this description. It's particularly a translation which more accurately could mean to gird yourself up. Right? So they would have long tunics that would reach down to their knees or ankles. You can't get anything done with a long tunic. I mean, I wouldn't really know, but I'm told. If you want to do anything other than sit around and meditate and think, watch TV, but if you actually want to get work done, you can't do anything active with long tunic. So gird up your loins is the Greek. Tie up your tunic. Bring it together. Bring it tight. Prepare yourself to work. That is, you are holy. Now get ready to do holy things. Let your hands touch everything. Being sober-minded. Preparing your minds for actions. That is, self-controlled. That is, as the church, we are to control our minds. It is always a matter of the mind. Why is it that our spiritual health is based on the Word? Why is our communion with God based on prayer? Why don't we go chop wood? Why don't we go run a marathon? Why does it have to be these mental exercises? Why? Because if you can control your mind, you can control everything about you. Do you want to be holy in your conduct? With your hands and your feet? Control your mind. Take it captive. Beat it as a man you wrestle every day. And you will be holy. It all begins by the mind. Gird up your loins. Be sober-minded so that you can be a progressive Christian. Yes, we are progressive. We are not conservative. We are not looking back and thinking about what the world once was or what it should be. Who cares? The 50s were terrible. There's racism. Whatever. Like, who cares? Like, look at this verse. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why should the postmoderns be progressive? They don't even know what the meta-narrative of anything is. They actually categorically deny that idea. So we're progressing to what? And from where? They don't know. And evidently it devolves into not knowing anything, even gender. What is truth? Christian the church progressive forward thinking I know who I am I know who my Lord is I know where I'm going follow me we're going there you say that you're already 1% of anyone who would ever dare to say something that but on the authority of Jesus Christ you can on the authority of Jesus Christ we confess a church who has prepared our minds for actions to set our hope fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ there is a linear view of history. It is not circular. We are going somewhere. Not everything is repeatable. Not everything is a karma. There is an end. There is a termination. And His name is Jesus Christ. And He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all honor. He will judge us all based upon our works impartially. And only the ones who are found in Him, who have bowed their knee to Him, who have found life in His name, they will look forward to that day and they will be progressive, forward thinking, and changing the whole world as they go. 
because they prepared their minds for action to be holy in all their conduct. You see, if you understand what the church is, the whole world becomes immediately practical. It's not just about what you believe here when you die. But if the church is here and now, and we look at each other now, and the Spirit indwells us now, then what should we be doing now? Because we know who we are. We know where we come from. And we know where we're going. And that just alone makes us holy. So this is the calling. The church is this calling. We're called to communion. You find this verse in 16. It says, It is written then, therefore, Peter says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. I love that he quoted that verse. It's from Leviticus 11. You should be holy, for I am holy. It's that passage about what food you're supposed to eat. Don't eat this, eat that. It says particularly, don't eat any unclean animals, only the clean ones that part the hoof, or have cloven feet, or livestock that we know regularly, that chew the quid, it says. And then after, after the Lord gives all these directions about how to eat the right food, how to eat the right food, He says, now you be holy like I'm holy. You say, how does the Lord care so much about eating a cow and not an alligator? Why are snakes unclean and why are goats and sheep and bulls clean? I'll tell you why. I'm really happy to tell you why. Those are the animals that were sacrificed on the altar. Those are the animals that the Lord ate, so to speak. Do you see what he just said there? You only eat what I eat. You only sit where I sit. We'll sit at a table together and eat. You only eat my kind of food. You're going to be holy like I am holy. Now you'd say, well, that was the Old Testament. That's the temple. Listen. The church has holy food. We have been given bread. We have been given cup. And not anyone can eat this. It is holy. And Jesus has said, this is what I eat. Now you eat it with me. And I will long to eat this with you and drink this with you again in my Father's kingdom. Holy communion. We have been called to that. Eat what I eat. Be holy as I am holy. For that calling to communion echoes forth from the cross. Conduct yourselves with fear and trembling, he says, in your time now in this exile. For you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold. No salvation is in this, though everyone seeks this. But in the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, without blemish and without spot. So we are called to holiness. How? To communion. From where? The cross. There is a communion to God at the foot of the cross. To be holy as I am holy. That is, but you see, you don't know my thoughts. 
Yes, my doubts, my lusts, my anger, my envy, my pride. Be holy as I am holy. See, you don't know that I am tarnished. That I have sins all around, you see. And we simply say nothing more than, well, yes, that's true. But there is this, an imperishable thing. Not gold. You haven't been stained by ink. You haven't been stained by silver. These things that were simply passed away. There is an imperishable redemption in the thing that cannot fall away, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. So yes, it is true, and we will not take it away, that we are sinners, and our glaring stains are marks upon the white dress of a bride that would be claimed for Christ. And it stands out for all the congregation to see in the wedding ceremony. It's an embarrassing mark. We don't deny it. We don't paint over it. We don't tone it down. We are sinners. In fact, you can only be in the church if you were willing to say you are a sinner. And yes, of course, we have stains. But Christ, Ephesians 5 says, He has so loved His church that He gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having washed her garments with the water of the Word. So yes, it's true. You are a sinner. You should be sitting right here, right now, because you are a sinner. And you should be hearing this word washing over your soul. For the very fact that it is true that we have flagrant and foul marks all over our own sheepskin, you could say. Our very coat should be white. We are the sheep, the flock of God. But you see, He's given Himself as a lamb without blemish. And without spot. And you will be made perfectly holy as he is holy. This is from the blood of Jesus Christ. That is imperishable. In a very real way, it is eternal blood. Your sins are not indelible. Your sins are not permanent. He has incorporated himself into us so much through his incarnation that his very blood that bears witness to your life can never fall away. Heaven and earth may pass away. Jesus Christ's blood for you will never pass away. And so therefore, we confess that we are holy And we pray for the Lord God to make us holy in all our conduct so that the world would see. In Jesus' name, dear Father God, we ask that you would make us holy. We understand it is not complete. But Lord, we are not content with that. We are not content with that. Your promises are too good. They're too rare, fine jewels that we could not pass up. We ask, Lord, in this particular prayer that you would sanctify us as a church. That you would make us a holy institution in all of our conduct. Lord, we submit all of our conduct to you. We confess our sins to you in every minute detail. And we bring them under your blood. Lord, we ask this by the power of your name. That you would sustain us and hold us. As we look forward to that day of your coming. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.